Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, a book that is so fascinating, huh? <laughs> so uh, alluring, so uh, provocative, and so uh, frustrating, <laughs> right? <laughs> so what we have been about from one day to the next and one episode to the next is just going through this book verse by verse, huh? verse by verse. And here we are almost two months later in chapter 11. So what I want to do is just jump right into chapter 11 and start with those opening verses. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And, and how about that? 42 months. What's going on there? Well, 42 months is equivalent to three and a half years, right? Or 1,260 days. These numbers will appear over and over again in the following chapters. The image is taken from Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, where the fourth beast will persecute the righteous for a time, two times, and a half time. Closely related to this is uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, where he uses, that is, Daniel, the same time frame. Now, in John's day, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, was understood as a prophecy concerning the conquering and desecration of the temple by Antiochus. Now, Antiochus persecuted the Jews for three and a half years. John's use then of phrases such as three and a half years or days, 42 months or 1,260 days, evoke the prior desecration by Antiochus. By prophesying about a coming 42 months, John compares the coming destruction by the Romans to something the Jews had already experienced. What have I said before? It is so important, my friends, when we go to interpret sacred scripture, that we do in that twofold sense, the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And here, in regards to the literal sense, we are made to appreciate the historical construct, if you will, from which John writes, appreciating the listening audience and what they might be hearing. This is why it is so important that when we study sacred scripture, we do so with a deeper understanding of history itself in relationship to that last point about John comparing the coming destruction by the Romans to something the Jews had already experienced. Did not Jesus speak of the actions of Antiochus in reference to the coming destruction in the year 70? Some have noted that the Jewish war itself was said to last for how long? Three and a half years. Okay, so how about Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 6? And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, 
Fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So the two witnesses are likened to two olive trees and two lamps, huh? <laughs> now this is probably a reference to Zechariah 4. If you go to any commentary, you will see a footnote to Zechariah 4. There, two olive trees continually provide oil for the lamps in the temple. The meaning of the passage is explained in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, where the temple in Jerusalem will be built despite the resistance of those who oppose it because it has God's anointing. These two witnesses, therefore, come to warn of the destruction of the earthly temple. Do you see, my friends, how all throughout this book we have that golden thread that weaves the whole narrative together? That in the end, you're dealing with the destruction of one temple to make room for another. So anyone who clings to it, that is the earthly temple, instead of following Christ, refuses to admit that the Spirit has left the earthly temple and anointed a better temple. The image of the two witnesses who stand before the Lord is also taken from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14. The two witnesses are those who have power to stop the rain, turn water into blood, and bring forth plagues. Where do we find these images? Have we not already talked about Moses and Elijah? Because certainly here we ought to, <laughs> as these images are associated with Moses and Elijah. What did Moses do? Was he not able to turn water into blood through the plagues? Fire also came down and consumed Moses' and Elijah's enemies. Elijah was able to seal off the sky so no rain could fall. If you were to go back into 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, that is what you read. Together, as many of us know, Moses and Elijah symbolize the two major parts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Certainly, many interpreters of the New Testament recognize this, seeing the vision of Moses and Elijah, where? But at the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration of Jesus as symbolizing our Lord's fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, there is also some evidence that people in the first century expected a return of Moses and Elijah in the New Age. The Gospels present John the Baptist as a new Elijah, and Jesus himself as a new Moses. What did he say on the road to Emmaus? Was he not teaching them how he is a new and better Moses? So these two witnesses continually bear witness against the city in Revelation. In verse 3, we read of sackcloth. Sackcloth is worn in the Bible as a sign of what? Repentance. If understanding the significance of the destruction of the earthly temple, so as to better understand the heavenly temple, is important in this book, then the spiritual importance of repentance, as we have come to appreciate hopefully, is equally important. Repentance. Especially in the face of coming judgment. So sackcloth is worn in the Bible as a sign of repentance, especially in the face of coming judgment. The image here, therefore, is that the Old Testament is now bearing witness against Israel. Moreover, Christians who preach the gospel in Jerusalem are God's witnesses against the city. Okay, 
How about Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, and the death of the two witnesses? And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make Mary in exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so here again, the two witnesses, mindful that the word witness comes from the Greek martyria, right, where we get the word martyrdom, are killed, <laughs> as were those under the altar that we read about in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. The way the wicked citizens neglect to bury the bodies of the witnesses evokes Psalm 79, as Psalm 79 also describes unburied bodies of the faithful killed in Jerusalem. Those who fail to give the righteous proper burials deserve God's wrath. Another point to be made here. Jerusalem, therefore, is pictured as that city which killed the prophets, rejecting their message. That city is called Sodom certainly in allusion to Isaiah 1, which addresses the rulers in Jerusalem as you rulers of Sodom. That being said, the beast that kills them bears a strong resemblance to the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Like the beast of Daniel, this beast arises from the abyss, the bottomless pit that we've already talked about, and makes war against the saints. As in Daniel, the saints will receive the kingdom once the beast is defeated. Once again, we see the number three and a half, which itself is related to Daniel. That the bodies lie in the street for three and a half days seems to imply a further warning of coming destruction. In other words, their shed blood cries out for justice, just as the souls under the altar do in chapter 6, verse 11. The peoples, tribes, and tongues against whom John was told to prophesy in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, rejoiced at the death of these witnesses. The prophets were a thorn in their side, constantly reminding them of the coming consequences of their actions. One is reminded of Jeremiah here, whom the people wanted to kill, saying what? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 4. We read, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the peoples by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So the death of the witnesses then symbolizes the prophets who warned Israel to repent and were killed. Mm. Revelation chapter 11, verses 11 to 14. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And in the sight of their foes, they went up to heaven in the cloud. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So, in verses 11 to 12, like Christ, who rose from the dead after three days, these witnesses are raised after three and a half days. John's description here 
seems to echo Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, that all-popular vision that we find in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verses 1 to 10, which is a symbol of the restoration of Israel. Ezekiel watches as the breath enters into the bodies of the dead and causes them to stand on their feet. Now, these two witnesses then are taken up into heaven. In fact, this being taken into heaven harkens back once again to Moses and Elijah. The Bible records Elijah's assumption into heaven and makes reference to an extra-biblical account of Moses' assumption. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, records that a fiery chariot took Elijah up into heaven. And what about Moses? Well, what do we find in the letter to Jude? The New Testament book of Jude alludes to a Jewish tradition which spoke of Moses' assumption into heaven. Huh? The reference to a tenth of the city is similar to the other trumpet judgments, which only bring partial destruction. The 7,000 deaths may also be a symbolic number of many deaths, as we've talked about before. On the other hand, it may be understood in terms of the 7,000 righteous in Elijah's day. The righteous, therefore, like the two witnesses, are martyred in the city. Now, there is also an interesting parallel here with Matthew's account of the events that coincided with our Lord's death. Flip with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 to 53. There we read, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. But just as John records that the rest were terrified and gave glory to God at the sight of the resurrection of the witnesses, so too the centurion, upon seeing these events, states what? Truly, this was the Son of God. The great doxology there. (laughs) So Christ, the true witness, was killed rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. By rejecting him and delivering him into the hands of Pontius Pilate, Jerusalem set itself up for judgment. All that now remains is the final woe. The vision of the rising of the witnesses and their assumption into heaven also foreshadows the resurrection on the last day. Last day capitalized, right? When the wicked of the world will be judged and the saints taken into heaven. If you turn to the catechism, Paragraph 1042, we read, At the end of time, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. After the universal judgment, the righteous will reign forever with Christ, glorified in body and soul. And is not the Eucharist a foretaste of this, inasmuch as those on earth are mystically taken up into the heavenly liturgy? All right, what more could be said about these opening verses? I want to turn to Peter Williamson here and some of his reflections. Revelation chapter 11 depicts a a twofold role of the church in history. We are called first to worship, then to witness. Is this not what I have talked about so often, the in God for other moment? To better understand the task, we must first enter into the gift. If we're going to make him known, we must first come know him. So first we pray, then we prophesy. And we do so proclaiming the gospel. Many of your friends, the liturgy is not on the periphery. It comes first. As we saw earlier in, in chapter 5, verse 8, and 
chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, the prayers of God's holy people offered on His altar in heaven move God to act. And this shapes the course of history. Debbie was with me last week, and we were talking about this, how our prayers actually shape and form history. At the same time, verbal testimony to the truth is an essential aspect of our mission, as it surely was for Christ. Now, what might Christians learn today about evangelization from this unusual prophetic narrative that depicts the church's mission, especially as it comes to us from this chapter and its opening verses? Well, first we are reminded that our Lord has commissioned us to be His witnesses to the world. Mindful that the word commission coming from the Latin commissio means what? To be sent with. In Christianity, not with something, but with someone. The person of Jesus Christ and, of course, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as such, we speak of God's message. We prophesy. Our message is about Jesus, but it also entails speaking the truth about right and wrong. We are lampstands intended to bring light to those around us in word and deed. Our message entails a call to what? Repent. We must speak humbly as people who know their need of repentance and forgiveness, earnestly desiring and praying for the conversion of all. Second, we are reminded to speak boldly since we stand before the Lord of the earth and our testimony enjoys the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are not left alone. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit who speaks through us. We should pray for and expect divine confirmation of our message. What does Paul tell the church of Corinth? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, that our Lord will bring confirmation in signs and wonders, that he will demonstrate for us that our message is not merely a human idea, but God's own word. I think an important message for us today. Third, we can expect that we will encounter stiff opposition. The world will not be happy with our words and way of life. What did John the Baptist suffer? <laughs> we need to prepare ourselves to be disliked, disapproved of, and even persecuted, realizing that everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Is this not what 2 Timothy 3.12 reminds us of? In the face of hostility, we are called to be courageous and to endure, knowing that God himself will protect and defend us until we have finished our testimony, and that if it be his will, we will conquer by laying down our lives. Finally, we can always look forward to divine vindication. Christ invites his faithful witnesses to reign with him in heaven. All of us are called to be saints, the kind of witnesses to whom Christ will say, what did we just read in verse 12? Come up hither. Meanwhile, being faithful to our task of bearing witness, we ought to have great hope in the efficacy of God's Word. That is, the power that comes from God's Word. That it might reap a harvest of men and women from all the nations who will join us in giving glory to God of heaven, giving glory to the God of heaven. The first century Christians who faced fierce persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire would have probably been amazed to learn that their testimony would one day lead to the conversion to Christianity of the majority of those living in the Roman Empire. Since then, Christian testimony, as we've talked about before in the past, to the gospel has changed the course of history. Many times, the preaching of St. Francis, St. Dominic, 
and others have turned back in large measure the air, the worldliness, and the incessant warfare of their day. The preaching of others have again transformed the way we read our history books. Christian testimony is called for today. And this is what stands before us, the need to see our call to fulfill our baptismal vocation. That baptismal vocation, which again calls us to live set apart from the world, which calls us to live in Jesus Christ in all that we do. Amen to that. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who was, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding thy servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Mm. So in these verses, the motif of the kingdom being given over to the saints after a time of persecution by a beast, certainly we could say, completes the picture of Daniel 7. It is also interesting that the saints take this opportunity to give thanks to God. As many of you know out there, thanks in Greek is the word from which we get Eucharist. Within the Eucharistic celebration, then, Christians enter the kingdom of God and peer into God's temple in heaven. What have we said about the word Eucharist? How are we made to understand this word, specifically as it relates to our own lives? The word Eucharist in the Greek, eucharisteros, means yes, to give thanks or thanksgiving. But maybe the better translation is to offer graciously. Remember, my friends, the Greek root there is charis, which can mean grace, but also joy. Okay, so the sacrament of the Eucharist is that which contains the plentitude or fullness of grace, but it is also to lead to joy. Joy, this great evangelical tool that abides within each and every one of us when we live in God. This is why Benedict XVI said, in reflecting upon the great angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary, that we have the first proclamation of the New Testament, when the angel said in the Greek, ke karitomene, rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail, full of grace. Did you catch that? You can translate that as either rejoice or the fullness of grace. Grace and joy, they belong together. And not only do they belong together, but they are bound up with each other in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So this is very important as we reflect into these verses. Now, it is also noteworthy that whereas the Lord was previously referred to as the one who was and is and is to come, he is now simply called the one who art and was. In this, 
John indicates that he has begun to reign because his judgment is underway. This sequence reaches its climax in chapter 16, where the final judgment of the chalices brings the divine judgment to completion, so that God is simply the one who art and was. Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. So, over the course of these last four chapters, we have a description of the destruction of the earthly city, which causes God's temple in heaven to be opened. In other words, as Michael Barber says, out with the old and in with the new. Yet, as glorious as the new Jerusalem is, some still cling to the earthly city and reject Christ's kingdom. In this, there is a lesson for all of us. You can't go to heaven without first dying. This is true in the physical sense of death, of course, but so much more so in the sense of dying to oneself. How many times have we talked about it, this call we have to constantly detach ourselves from worldliness and set our sights on heavenly realities? Thus, as great and glorious as earthly goods can be, they become evil when they stand in the way of our heavenly goal. Anywhere and everywhere, we are called to live with the end in mind, my dear friends. And so, by keeping her pilgrim status in mind, the church, okay, so the church is the pilgrim church, must always focus on her heavenly calling. Christians, therefore, must learn to prioritize their lives, reflecting the way in which the church constantly points us towards the end, living with the end in mind. This is what is uh, before us all in so many ways. Okay, we will pick up here uh, next time. Um, now, I did not touch upon that last verse intentionally because that last verse sets up chapter 12 beautifully, and I'm going to have Debbie Rizals with me next week, and we are going to have the opportunity for really the first time to reflect into the importance of Mary and Mary's queenship because what follows the end of chapter 11 in chapter 12 is something very, very interesting. And until then, <laughs> let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this time, this time that we have together to reflect upon the richness of your word, your word that is constantly challenging us to become the best version of who you are calling us to be. And we always pray that you might show us the better way, the better way that is always the road less traveled, the road that leads to holiness. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.